Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. This was U.S. automobile manufacturing in the 80s. This was like the epitome of everything that went wrong in this industry. It was like two tin boxes stacked on top of each other, painted red, lined with plastic. Nothing worked. Every time you get in the water and you do a little bit of practice and you do a little bit more, your 25s become 50s, your 50s become 100, your 100s become 200s, and eventually you're swimming miles. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I am Jessica Hinken. And this week on the podcast, Healing at Hanukkah, two stories about forgiveness and connection during the Festival of Lights. So this first story is from Josh Kahn. And it really, it's just a kind of another version of how you get uh, fire from a limited amount of oil. So take a listen. July 26, 1979, my sister Rebecca Emily Kahn was born. And then uh, a quick 16 months later, I was, uh, I was born. And uh, in my sister's uh, retelling of her life, she will tell you she had 16 months of everything, and then I came along behind her and destroyed it all. <laughs> the day my sister turned 16 years old, she got her driver's license, and my parents surprised her with a cherry red 1988 Dodge Shadow. Now, I don't, I don't want you to be caught up by the mystical name and the color. This was not a hot rod. This was a dump of a car. Um, uh, this, was, uh, this was U.S. automobile manufacturing in the 80s. This was like the epitome of everything that went wrong in this industry. It was like two tin boxes stacked on top of each other, painted red, lined with plastic. Nothing worked. But that didn't matter because this was my sister's car, and she loved it. It was her first car, and she took so much, so much pride in it. And for 16 months, she drove it around northeast Philadelphia with just a great sense of ownership and, and, and being. And then 16 months later, it was my birthday. And what did I get for my birthday? The keys to my sister's car. <laughs> so... Um, so this is Northeast Philadelphia in the mid-90s, and we were young, and we were wild, and, and we were Jewish. And while everybody else was celebrating Christmas over the Christmas break, we were part of this Jewish youth group, and um, uh, we had a, a convention of Jewish youth groups that was going to be happening in North Jersey. And my sister was a big shot in this Jewish youth group, so she went up a couple days in advance, but I was not a big shot. Um, and so I was going to take the charter bus, which was leaving from the Jewish Community Center of Northeast Philadelphia, up to 95. Um, and so this is a little before Christmas, and uh, uh, school ended, and I hopped in the 1988 Dodge Shadow, and I drove to the JCC parking lot. It was jumping. Like, it was really rocking over there at the JCC. And I guess there was like a gym in there, and maybe everybody was working off their calories because they are going to gorge themselves on Chinese food, whatever it was. There was no parking spots except all the way in the far corner of the lot where the, the street lights didn't hit, you know, where all the broken glass was, you know, that spot that you never want to park in. That was the only spot left. And I drove the car over there and I parked it and I didn't really think anything of it. And I grabbed my bags and I locked the car and then I went to the, the Jewish youth group convention. And now it's like 20 some odd years later. And to be honest, I don't remember a thing that happened at that convention. What I do remember is getting off the bus on our way back. And my sister's with me at this point. And we get off the bus and we look in the parking lot and we don't see the, the, the gleam coming off of the red of the Dodge Shadow. And then I remembered I parked the car all the way in that corner in that spot. And so I walked over to the corner of the lot and, and there still warm to the touch was the, the burnt out shell of my sister's happiness. 
Yeah, no, it was, this car was burnt to a crisp, and, and I honestly probably wouldn't even thought it was our car, except my homework was sit, sitting kind of burnt off to the side of the car, and I knew it was our car at that point, and my sister, her rage just glowed at that moment. She was sure that I had done something wrong. If I didn't personally just, like, leave the car on or something to light it on fire, then what idiot parks their car in that spot in the lot? Well, eventually the police came, and they kind of tempered her, her rage a little bit. They said a few other cars had had some minor vandalism, so she, she calmed down a little bit. And then the police, we got to love the police, they said, but you know what? Your car probably got caught on fire because you left it in this dark spot in the corner of the lot. And then her rage just burnt with a passion that only a sibling's rage can burn. And it was, it was a rage that lasted throughout the, the Christmas break into early 1997. The new year came. When we got, this, uh, we got this bill in the mail. Now, what we forgot was in the trunk of the car was one of those old cellular telephones. You know, before the days of smartphones, um, there were those bag phones, those cellular phones that you would keep in your car and you plug into your, your lighter. And they charge you like $5, $7 a minute. And my parents, um, under no uncertain terms, were we allowed to use this phone except for in case of emergency. So it just really sat in our car. Despite this car being a piece of junk, we rarely had to pull the, the phone out. But we get this bill in the mail, and there's seven phone, phone calls made, all originating on the night that this car was blown up. Hmm. This is the part of the story where I introduce my mother. My mother's a very interesting human being. Um, she taught for 33 years uh, high school in the Philadelphia School District. And she's one of those people, I think you know these people, they are teachers for so long that the line between home life and teaching life is really blurred. She would always speak at like a very high volume, like she was lecturing us and my friends. She had this weird obsession about wearing hats inside. But most importantly, she had just like this deep, intrinsic understanding of the stupidity of teenagers, um, which was very beneficial to me. Uh, so we get this bill in the mail, and what she might have done at this point was call the police and turn this over, but that's not what she did. What she did was she took the seven numbers and divided them up amongst my sister and I and said, okay, you guys are calling these and figuring out who let the car on fire. So we don't, we don't disagree with our mother ever, because <laughs> she talks very loudly. And um, so we started calling these numbers. Now, do you know the term um, snitches get stitches? You know that? Well... In, uh, in the winter of 1997 in Northeast Philadelphia, loose lips sank ships, and at the end of every one of those calls was a teenager, and they all flipped. They all turned up in one kid. They're like, oh, it's this one guy. So we knew who it was, and we went to my mother, and we said every number was a teenager, and everyone said it was this one kid who did it. Now, what my mother could have done at this point was she could have called the police, but she didn't do that. <laughs> what she did was call this kid up. And she didn't, she, she, he picked up the phone, but then she asked for his mom, which is like, the wor- as a kid, that's the worst thing. Um, and over a series of conversations, over a course of a few days, she learned a lot about this kid and found out that uh, he was going through a really tough period of his life and was um, skipping school a lot and getting into a lot of trouble. Um, and so she made a deal with the parents. She said, okay, I can either, once again, I can call the police and turn your son in, or um, he can start going to therapy, and then he can get a job and he himself has to pay us the difference between the insurance money we got for the 1988 Dodge Shadow and the fancy 1989 Toyota Camry, Japanese-made, very nice car. <laughs> and so, of course, they, they took that deal. And then for a couple years, every week or so, we would get in the mail an envelope. And in that envelope would be like $30 or $40 that he would, be ma- he would make slinging pizzas at the Northeast Philadelphia Pizza Joint. And then every Christmas, we would get a letter. And that letter, he would recount all the good things that happened in his life since that moment my mother called his mother. Very beautiful thing. And, and, um, and that's kind of the end of the story. There's no, like, um, you know, Hollywood ending where, like, you know, he marries my sister or, like, 
They come over to Thanksgiving. We like, you know, he paid off his debt and we stopped hearing about him and, and that's the end of the story. Right? But I think about this story now a lot because in the age of social media, if this, in 2019 this happened, what would have happened is my sister and I would have gotten off, off the bus and then we would have seen the burnt out shell of her happiness. And we would have taken a photo on our cell phones and we would have posted it to Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or whatever the kids are using these days. And it would have gone viral as an act of anti-Semitism. And uh, how wrong would that have been? I mean, he lit a car on fire on Christmas at a Jewish community center parking lot. But, but that's not what happened. So I hope wherever he is, you know, he's probably about my age now, and I hope that he can, he can take a moment and be thankful that he was a stupid kid at a time when it was okay to be a stupid kid, and that his path cr- crossed paths with my mother. Josh, is, I, just, I could listen to stories from Josh all day, but two things that I just are burned into my brain from his story. Uh, the image of the... Um, the old cell phone that was in the back of his the car, and then just his description of his mom being the high school teacher who was obsessed with, um, you know, them not wearing hats in the house and using a real like imperious voice. I just love it. I love it so much. He's yeah, his so- mother comes across just so beautifully here. Yeah, <laughs> in all of his stories, um, she's featured prominently. We will be back in a moment with another story from the stoop. Support for WYPR's podcasts comes from Catholic Charities. Celebrating its centennial in 2023, Catholic Charities is the largest private provider of social services in Maryland. Learn more about this movement to change lives at cc-md.org. Okay, so this next storyteller is Bill Kirkner. Uh, Bill is um, the swim coach at the Jewish Community Center in Owings Mills, Maryland. It's a suburban area outside of Baltimore. And um, as you will be able to discern pretty quickly, he's decidedly not Jewish, um, but he's very religious. And so um, it's I love this story. It's a great story. I will say it has some aspects that could feel maybe a little bit preachy. Um, I get that. But I was like, preach away. I love it. Uh, And Um, I also think this story was told before 2016, if I remember. So things were just, oh, man, what a simpler time it was. Um, Anyway, take a listen. So about eight years ago, the swim team at the Owings Mills JCC, Owings Mills is in northwest Baltimore County, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, merged with a smaller team that had been practicing at the public pool's in Baltimore City. We needed a head coach. They needed a place to practice where you didn't have to bribe the lifeguards to get in. Um, The teams were a little bit different. Our team being in Owings Mills, you you don't actually need to be Jewish to belong to the Jewish Community Center. Uh, As my uh, bio kind of indicated, I'm not. Um, I've worked there for about 12 years. Um, But Uh, I was raised Baltimore Catholic, uh, Loyola College in Georgetown. Um, But our team was about 60%, uh, I'll call it mixed Jews. So we had a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We had some Orthodox, we had some conservative, we had some uh, reform, we had some secular, uh, we had some non-attached. And because we're in Owings Mills, uh, we had some of the other folks from the community. So um, some Hispanic, but overall, pretty darn white. Uh, the other team was 
Um, not that. Uh, they had lots of kids who uh, would have been on scholarships. They had kids from all sorts of areas of the world. They had a family that was from Morocco. They also had uh, an Irish Catholic family with four kids. Um, the second son was actually adopted, so they had two boys the same age. Um, one was black and one was white. Um, and it was kind of a marriage of convenience. The two groups both needed very specific things. Uh, Things worked out for practices, but the groups didn't exactly mesh. Now, around Thanksgiving of that year, um, the mom of the Irish Catholic family uh, with six kids um, came to me and said, it has been our team's tradition for years to hold a Christmas party. We know we can't hold a Christmas party at the JCC, but could we hold a holiday party? And I said, no, actually, if we're going to do a party at the J, it's going to end up being a Hanukkah party, but that's going to be okay. Part of the reason it's going to be okay is that um, it's pretty clear, if you didn't know, that Jesus probably celebrated this holiday with his family in the same way that we would celebrate the 4th of July. It was a freedom holiday um, that would have been celebrated by them. And by the way, in the terms of the holidays that are celebrated at the JCC, not really religious. This is really very secular and more of a for fun holiday and just tell your kids it's a cultural experience and I promise nothing bad will come to them. And she looked at my, uh, my degrees from Loyola and Georgetown and figured she could trust me. And so we moved forward with that. Now, um, I asked our executive director who was a like 30 something year veteran of the Jewish Community Center movement, and you know the world, the word "mensch" was made for this guy. Um, if he would mind doing the story to explain the importance of Hanukkah um, in a way that these two groups could understand, and he's like, "Sure, I'm on it," because this was going to be the first time that these two groups were going to be together in a kind of social for fun setting, and I really needed them to click together. And the plan was working like clockwork until noon of the day of the party. And noon of the day of the party, news broke that a couple of uh, Orthodox Jewish men, young men who belonged to the uh, neighborhood watch in Park Heights, had beaten a young African-American man, kind of breaking all the rules of God and Neighborhood Watch. Um, and my director, who was a social worker of the very old school, had immediately jumped into action. And if by noon the news was out, by 2 o'clock he had contacted the mayor, the police force. By 3 o'clock he had contacted almost every single religious leader that was available anywhere in that area, and tried to get everybody together at our Park Heights facility that evening so that we could head off further violence, which meant that about five o'clock with one hour to go, he came to Catholic boy Bill and said, you're going to have to explain what Hanukkah is about to everybody. So um, <clears throat> I, I did what every co coach does um, when you don't completely know the answer. I asked the kids. So I turned to some of our experienced younger kids, and I said to them, 
okay, we have folks here at the party who don't know the story of Hanukkah, so could you tell them the story of Hanukkah? But what I want you to do, the younger ones, I want you to focus on the little kid version of Hanukkah, which has to do with the eight nights kind of thing. And so they get up and they explain, well, we're going to try to rededicate the temple, but there's only enough oil for one night, um, but the oil lasts for eight nights, and it's a miracle, and we all celebrate. And I'm like, great, got it. Everybody understands? So what does it have to do with swimming? I'll tell you what it has to do with swimming. What it has to do with swimming is that what everybody thought is that by using some of the energy, by using some of the oil, they were just going to deplete it. But the reality of it was that by going back day after day and doing what it was that they were supposed to do, the energy actually didn't go down. The amount of potential to do stuff actually went up. And it's the same way with you and what you're doing in swimming. Hanukkah is the official swim team holiday because... (laughs) Every time you get in the water and you do a little bit of practice and you do a little bit more, your 25s become 50s, your 50s become 100s, your 100s become 200s, and eventually you're swimming miles. And the other thing that makes our team unique and makes our team great is the fact that you know that when you're doing one of those really difficult races and you feel like there can't possibly be enough power to get you through... The special sauce that the JCC team has is that we know for sure that if you ask, there will be enough energy there to get you through. So then I turned to the older kids and I said, okay, same thing. We have a lot of parents and we have a lot of your peers here. Now what I want you to do is explain to them um, the, the real story. The real story of Hanukkah. Now, by the way, for those of you who do not know the full story of Hanukkah, um, you might want to go check First and Second Maccabees in a Catholic Bible. Um, there is uh, atrocities. There is murder. There is some rape. There um, is uh, probably genocidal violence in there on both sides. It's like Game of Thrones. You'll love it. Um, but, <laughs> but perhaps not the best bet for uh, an ecumenical gathering of a lot of different people, at least the way to start. And I'm like, short version, explain the story. And they say, okay, evil Greek king um, says people can't practice their religion. Uh, People fight back. They win back the right to do it. Now we're into the story with the eight days and the lamp. What does that have to do with swimming? And they look at me, because they got the first part, but they have no idea how this is going to match. And I'm like, it has nothing to do with swimming, and it has everything to do with swimming. I want you to look around this room and see all of the people who are here with you tonight. The gathering that we have here tonight could not possibly happen most places on the earth. Most places on the earth, there is so much discord between people, frequently because of religious tensions and things like that, that you who just just fasted for Ramadan could not be sitting next to 
and sharing a table with your friend from Bethsaphila. And the Catholic kids could not be sitting with the Orthodox kids. In most places in the world, this could not happen. This would not happen. So how did this happen? The way this happened is that about 200 years ago, when our founding fathers were putting together the major documents for the country, they were well-versed in that story I just told you to go read. And they knew about the violence that could happen when an oppressive government tries to force its particular brand of the truth onto all of the citizens. They know the violence that can come from that government, and they know the, the violence that can come from the response to that. In fact, they said that they wanted to avoid the constant conflict and bloodshed that has soaked the soil of Europe for centuries. And that's what gave us the First Amendment. So what does that have to do with us today? Because 2,000 years ago, some people fought for freedom. 200 years ago, our other people who fought for freedom for us here created the situation that means that we're able to sit in peace together today. So somehow I managed to pull out of that and get into something that was a little more fun. We eventually got to the latkes, the, the stuffed donuts, the, and the dreidels. Um, and we actually created a separate new game of dreidels where you spun two dreidels, and depending on how many dreidels, it was kind of like dreidel craps where you got different amounts of... of... It's a good game. Um, you know, where you got different amounts of gout. And somewhere in the middle of all of the... the, the overload from the sugar and the, the, the oil and the, the donuts and the everything else, the second youngest of the 10 kids from the Irish Catholic family um, with like gelt all over his face and everything else, kid looks like a, a cross between a Weasley and a Botticelli painting, right? <laughs> but ends up yelling, this is the best holiday ever! If you were the parent of a Jewish child, I can kind of assure you that that is not a situation, that is not a feeling that your child generally gets. <laughs> when the Christmas music starts at 12.01 on November 1st, and every place you go is decked in bows and green and red... And everything in the world has Santa or elves or something like this bedecked and bedazzled on it. That is not, that is not the feeling that your kid generally gets. At that moment, I was actually terrified because I did not know what the reaction from the parents was going to be. And I looked over at some of the Jewish parents, and the reaction actually gave me more reason to feel terrified because they looked stricken. And time slowed. And it was only after a couple of seconds that I realized that it was about the fact that they'd never had that opportunity to have someone say that they enjoyed their holiday. 
that their Christian friends had never told them how much they enjoyed their holiday and we had managed to give them a gift that their child would remember for a long time. Now, I would love to tell you that as of that night, we healed the world (laughs) and that hatred and division vanished from the earth as if this was a Hallmark movie. It didn't. Um, But some things did happen. Between then and the next meet, which was kind of like the day after New Year's Eve, it was like, or the, the day after New Year's, it was like the 2nd of January, um, apparently there had been a bunch of different sleepovers with the kids from the different teams. And some of the kids on my old team, now one team, had gone back into the, the pile of their old clothes and had found some of the old but clean and in good shape, uh, you know, team t-shirts, the old... Uh, warm-ups and everything else that they traded with their new friends from the other team. So that by the time we got to that next meet at the very first weekend of January, everybody had stuff that meant that they were part of one team. We did not solve the world, but a couple years later, some of the Jewish kids, even though there was a championship coming up, fasted with the kids who practice Islam during Ramadan. And the following year, Ramadan happened to fall at the same time that rockets were falling on our sister city, Ashkelon, in Israel. And they had been, our team had been watching uh, the kids from the team in Ashkelon and following their progress, and they were getting ready for nationals, and all of a sudden those kids all lost out on their opportunity for nationals. And some of the kids who were, who were fasting for Ramadan, said to their groups, I am fasting so that God will protect my friends in Israel. We did not heal the world that night. But as the rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sack said, your faith is not my faith, and my faith is not your faith. But if we are both free to light a candle, then perhaps the joint brightness will help dispel the darkness. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, The moment in the story where he talks about, you know, look around you tonight. There are so few places in the world where these, you know, this diverse community could be together. And he's referencing the um, the swimming, you know, holiday, the Hanukkah celebration at the JCC. But it really felt like as an audience member that evening that he was talking about us in that moment, too. It was really I love that story. I think it's beautiful. Thanks so much for listening this week, and we wish you a happy holiday, whatever holidays you celebrate. We want to thank Maureen Harvey for producing the podcast. Please visit us at stoopstorytelling.com to learn about upcoming events and listen to previous stories and episodes. And we will be back very soon with more stories from the Stoop. See you in 2023. Thank you.